0: Rebuilding Your Life, Moving from Disaster to Prosperity, with Susan Chireco, where we help you transform your life by changing
1: what you're telling yourself. Whatever your circumstances, you can experience health, financial security, and a sense of well-being once again. And now, here's your host, Susan Shereyko. On behalf of Rebuilding Your Life Radio, and the Train Your Brain, Claim Your Power calls, welcome. It's my pleasure. To introduce you to Stephen Peterson today. Stephen has had the opportunity to have a very diverse education. His first language is Seminole, but, but he became a student of languages, English, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French, and Italian. That breadth of knowledge made him very attractive to the military, and his career evolved from there. Please help me welcome Stephen Peterson to the show today. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the show.
0: Uh, Thank you. I'm glad to be here on a Holy Thursday.
1: (laughs) On Holy Thursday and and April Fool's Day, which takes (laughs) precedence. Stephen, your early upbringing is a valuable part of your story. Can you tell us about your life before you began to study all these languages and what happened that started you on this linguistic accomplishment?
0: Well, I was uh, born into a very large family. As a matter of fact, my uh, parents had a total of uh, 17 of us, uh, being number one. Oh. And yeah. uh, and that taught me several uh, uh, aspects of life, and that is responsibility. <laughs> I was responsible for all my brothers and sisters. And um, uh, one of the aspects is uh, is cleaning them, taking care of them. So I learned very early how to do that. Plus, I had uh, many uh, relatives who um, were responsible for my upbringing as well. They also kept me in order. So, um, <laughs> um, and then too, I had a grandmother that essentially, um, you know, did not speak uh, English. She was a Seminole Indian. So. I learned that uh, from a very early age and it uh, just came natural because what I want to be is I wanted to be a, a priest. I'm a, a Roman Catholic. And, uh, so that, uh, I said I wanted to be a priest and, um, I went to a seminary for three years. So I had to learn, uh, Latin first, uh, then Greek and then Hebrew. And, uh, I also had a teacher that spoke Italian, so I learned how to speak Italian that way. Plus, a priest who uh, also spoke uh, French. So, in a Catholic school, you can uh, pretty well be well-rounded just by uh, being in such a uh, area of education. So uh, that uh, that was my early upbringing.
1: Well, that's that's interesting because you you at some point pick up the. Um the 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 attention of the military, the army. They notice your accomplishments and they want you to get involved. Did you volunteer to be in the service?
0: Well, it was a combination of both. Uh, back in the day, uh, especially during the Vietnam period, where I, you know what, where I was in, is uh, you had to be an ROTC in the cause where I went to school. Uh, that being Indiana University. So, we had a large r o t c class and um uh so that uh freshmen were required to enroll in r o t c uh so I went ahead and did that uh but I have a uh, background where just about oh going back several generations where I've had uh men who served who were in my family served in the military so um and I was interested in it, and then they became interested in me uh by giving me scholarships because I did fairly well in uh elementary and high school uh plus i was uh, I already had college credits when I went uh to uh college in my freshman year so by the time by the time i was uh uh considered a freshman, I had got something like eighteen hours uh because I was finishing. High school rather early, uh, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's a story behind that. And I don't mm-hmm. know if I want to get into that. <laughs> okay,
1: but but you, what I was fascinated is the opportunity that you had to obtain your education. I have, I mean, I I know I haven't written down in front of me. You have two master degrees, you have two doctorates, you've been all over the world several times, you've been a, a you know, a you. you studied physical anthropology, you've been a, a division commander. It's it's a stellar spread of opportunity and maybe you can expre- explain it better, what you actually did in the service and how all your languages came into bearing with you.
0: Uh, I went in actually as a field artilleryman, uh, graduated from college, field artillery, and uh, they... Uh, uh, they noticed one little aspect that I, I had uh not i didn't say anything about it It's just that that I started college when I was sixteen, and that wasn't because I was any more intelligent than anybody else it's uh that my uh, uh father and uncles uh and actually my grand- uh what was grandmother told me that I had to get a very good education because uh, being a minority uh that at that time you had to be as they told me constantly I had to be twice as uh prepared as uh someone else who was uh uh, uh not of uh of a minority uh so that uh, i went to school plus I got involved in a little bit of fighting too so <laughs> that uh, that made my uh father and uncle in particular. My maternal uncle in particular said, you need to go to school. You've got to uh, stop beating up on people just because. So Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. that led to that. Then uh, as I continued on, I uh, went into the Army, and they noted that I was very good in my mathematics and physics and uh, chemistry, which is a requirement in a Roman Catholic education. So... Uh, they made me an artilleryman and most of my protest, I want to be infantry because I want to see action, and little did I know the kind of action you saw in the military during wartime is not exactly pretty, but right. Uh, right. Um, I, um, uh, you know, they noted this, uh, plus I kept asking them, could I go to school, so the military paid for my education all the way through uh, school, plus I Received some uh, private funding as well, so I didn't have to pay for anything. Uh, I just took advantage of what was uh, before me. So <clears throat> I remained in for quite a few years—38 years, uh, 38 years uh, of service. But that was for payback for all the money I got from <laughs> while I was in. So uh, it, it worked out. It worked out very well for me. So I, I was uh, quite pleased with the ability just to learn. And because of that, went all over the world.
1: Um, now, one of your one of your big passions, or I want to say that I see a, a calling there, was military history and archaeology. Yeah. And that, and plus plus your faith, that you wound up uh, in this this op, having an opportunity to really look at the Hebrew culture and the life of their warriors, what it was like.
0: Yes, ma'am. Um what uh, really uh, made me interested is I had a question that I just could not answer, and I, I kept uh, asking the question, is why were the uh, uh, Hebrews in the Sinai for 40 years? And when you go there, and I did uh, more than once, and look at the lay of the land and the distance, it it seemed like it was a short distance. Um, you know, it would be like going to uh from uh Chicago to Cleveland. That's not that far, uh, relatively speaking. So I wonder why uh they were roaming around the desert for that long. Uh so I read scripture and then it still didn't make much sense to me at all. So I thought uh I looked looked at one little piece and I thought that uh Maybe they were doing something else then i learned uh I thought about the mind and learned about what Moses was doing so essentially, what he was doing he was training the uh uh Hebrew people to be soldiers because there weren 't very many of them relative to the populations around them so that 's what he was doing, making soldiers uh of the uh the population. To be able to uh deal with the various groups that uh the promised land uh had in them so that's why they were able to defeat various uh groups of people because they had the numbers and they were well trained and i also learned that the uh uh hebrew people had weaponry that had not been seen anywhere in that area and i you know, I just started putting things together that they learned that while while they were being enslaved, as well as what uh, Moses and then Joshua had been teaching them. So I I gave this idea and passed it around to a variety of people. And um, uh, so uh, the History Channel looked at it and thought that this was rather interesting as well. So they put that in one of their, their series That this is what they think the um, Hebrew Hebrew people were doing. So that was kind of great.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. (laughs) I've I've never heard that approach before, but I must admit it makes a lot of sense. I started reading the Bible from start, you know, start heading toward the finish um, only in January, and I had never really sat down and done that. And what keeps striking me is the amount of warfare in the Bible. You know, through the the new the Old Testament, it's just filled with it, and I was stunned by that. And and I of course I put it in today's context. And there were I, I, another thing that struck me were all those sanctuary towns or cities that they had, uh, because if you committed a crime and it wasn't um, if you killed someone and it wasn't murder, then you had a place to go so that their relatives couldn't kill you for honor or you know vengeance. Is that why we have, you know, sanctuary cities today? What is what is that part of that, that tradition?
0: And uh, that has been part of the uh, Hebrew uh, history as well, and, and I believe you're right uh, with respect to that aspect of sanctuary. And I think that may have been uh, learned through uh, what the Hebrews had experienced um in uh, Egypt and later through the Sinai, but this was also uh, developed in uh, later Hebrew society or what we call Jewish society, and then also Christianity took it into uh, uh, being as well. As when you went into uh, Christian churches, the uh, same thing applied. Uh, sanctuary, you didn't bring your weaponry in, and, uh, and we were taught to forgive once we did that uh, when we went into a church uh, for a sanctuary. And this uh, still is in play in uh, Christianity today. You don't uh, bring weaponry. And that's why in um, looking at how some uh, Christians feel about, you know, arming up even though you're being attacked by somebody outside, I think that leads to, to some of that thinking even even to this day and why uh, many of our churches do not want uh, people with weapons in, in a church. It's, it's a tradition that goes back, you know, literally thousands of years that uh, seems to have been started amongst the uh, Hebraics. So I think the right about that.
1: So, Stephen, um, I I should get off the digression here and, and have you tell us a little bit about your book. It's called There's a New Kid in Sassina what what is it about
0: and what that is um was uh, my uh experience in high school and um because when I walked in a uh, high school I was uh, afraid of uh, virtually everybody it just you know it, it was a different venue for me uh, so that uh what I did is I just took uh two people that I uh was a student with or you know my fellow students and made them into uh, characters in the uh, book that I wrote uh also in addition to uh taking my classmates and uh trying to determine what this was all about is to develop um them into uh people and what we look at today in terms of uh success so uh having been um you know, educated in both anthropology and psychology, I wrote this book uh, using those two uh, thoughts in mind. That is that uh, here you have one student, her name is uh, Kat, actually short name for uh, Catherine, and uh, McKaylee, who was a, a student who had not really been any anywhere, and you bring these two individuals together. Um, and... Then we learn just uh, how uh, you know two people with two different experiences can actually work. So I'm, since being a psychologist, I just uh, took uh, this uh, these two ideas and then ran them across. And the question was, is how do we achieve success in life uh, after we leave high school? And that is. I develop, uh steps as to what we do in order to become a, uh, a person in a social situation. So one step uh, that I had is that we learn to uh, be uh, successful by our association with others. We are social beings, so, you know, that's a natural uh, aspect of it. And then we learn how to uh, work with each other, that is um, – understand that there's going to be people that are going to like you some people that are going to love you and then there'll be people that don't care uh which you know anything about you because for one thing uh some people really don't want to get to know you so what you know i learned to understand is that we have friends we have uh people that we just associate with we don't know much about them but anyway uh, we have to develop, I think, uh, notions that uh, there are a variety of people around us and it's up to us to be able to pick and choose as to how we're going to uh, find our way through just uh, social living.
1: Steven, was Cecina was a real high school?
0: Uh, yes, ma'am. It's actually in a indianapolis uh, indiana on the uh the east side of uh indianapolis and In- and
1: you felt you felt very strongly about this school you you i you speak of it with glowing terms what was so special about it
0: um it's the um it is the um uh what i would call the uh the home like situation the friendliness of uh the uh, people uh Cecina and actually uh, uh the point that it was started in 1953 to uh to today is is a very um, i would say homogenous uh, school uh today there's over 400 students when i went there it was pretty close to uh 1500 students so it's a, a small mm-hmm. school yeah it's, it's it's changed a little bit uh, but Uh, It's a small school, Roman Catholic school And what was impressive about it Is that, um, like I said uh, I remember going to school with Caucasians uh, African, uh, people of African ancestry Hispanics, uh, people who uh, we call Asian today um, And uh, priests and nuns were the primary teachers and they were also homogenous. I had uh, my math teacher was uh, African-American. My English teacher was, was a nun who uh, was the first generation German. And all these people together uh, with the quality of education, you, uh, you had to learn what you needed to learn. Um, I did fairly well at that except with regards to English. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, Why Why was English so challenging?
0: It, for me, it's the most difficult language that anybody can learn uh, because I was always told that English is a, a Germanic language. And when you look at it, it's not as Germanic as you think, at least from where I was seeing. Uh, what I ended up learning is that about 40% of English is a combination of uh latin and uh greek latin and greek and so when i took uh uh both latin and greek um, because you know, essentially we had to uh and I, I was on track to be a priest so um when i started looking at the language i saw more this seems to me more latin and greek in the language than than uh uh what people would call Germanic. And that was hard to sort of, you know, roll around in my little head at the time. So, <laughs> so English scared English scared me.
1: <laughs> but your your teacher, your your the nun who was your teacher made it pretty clear to you that you had to get English. You had to uh, learn
0: yeah. it. Right, she did and she uh uh uh, she was surprised by the grades I w- I was uh, producing, all A's and everything else, and English I was failing. <laughs> so she took me, so she took me aside, and said to me that if you want to be, you know, she asked me the question, what do you want to, to do in life? So I said, uh I want to go to college. That's all I said. I want to go to college, and she said, well, you wouldn't last very long if um, uh, if you tried to go to college and didn't know English. So uh, mm. she, offered, she offered me a choice. Either I can work with you or you're going to have a very hard time in life uh, in this country if you don't learn English. So that's, that's, that's what she offered me.
1: And you took to it. I mean, yes. I I look at what you've done. I mean, you wrote this 12 Days of Christmas, which got you into college, and you told me that 50,000 people have read it.
0: Right. It's on a uh, website. It's called uh, com, and uh, when I put that on there, gosh, it, it seems like it was uh, several years ago. Different people have read it, but that was the first uh, real uh, piece of writing that I wrote because I wrote it in that English class with uh, – Sister Rita Clare, who who said she would spend uh, thir- uh, Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, and Thursday nights working with me to learn how to write uh, and understand how English worked. So she did that, and she gave me as an assignment to uh, determine uh, what the Twelve Days of Christmas uh, meant. Uh, so she gave me a research project. And for the first, uh, I want to say, just around 17 times, she failed me. In other words, you know, she failed me and said, no, this is not what you must do. You must do this. So I learned how to do that just based upon uh, her teaching and training. She taught me everything, what a dangling uh, participle uh, was, um, do not use contractions. And today – Uh, I still do not use contractions. Even when I speak, I do not use contractions. She said contractions are an aberration of any language. She said it does exist in German as well. So I didn't, I I even did it now. I did, I do not use contractions when writing because she said it was not good. So I didn't do it. You still
1: don't do it. You still don't do it. Well, I notice the computer tells me not to do it. If I type in, it will, you know, highlight, no, that's not okay. So <laughs> they, they're all in it together. But you, you took all this, and you went on to university, and you got your degrees, and you, the professors must have liked the way you wrote because they began to ask you to help them.
0: Yes, ma'am. Um my One of my first uh, professors, I'll never forget, I will never forget him, is uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Scanzoni asked me to uh, write a chapter uh, for one of his books. I, I did that. He gave me uh, three hours of college credit for that, and I believe that book is still in uh, libraries uh, maybe all over the country. It's called uh black family, so i did uh research wrote the uh chapter uh for him in uh uh one of his uh books uh that of course went across other uh programs that i took um uh a professor i had uh frank barton did the same thing um george Newman in anthropology did the same thing so Um, I began writing uh, chapters for professors. And then uh, it it was not uh, until I received my uh, bachelor's that I actually, uh, no, my master's, that I actually write my actual first true book. It was written back in 1975, and that is how people grow and develop. So that was the first. Book publication ever had And that ended up more or less A a textbook Um, So that um, You know slowly but surely I began uh, writing for A variety of different people so um, I don't count those in the count um, Of books that I've actually Written over over time But uh, that Helped me to actually do Research and uh, actually How to write
1: Mhm mm-hmm. yeah, tell me these are the books that you wrote prior to um there's a new Kid in Cena were they all more scientific like that
0: uh some were uh some were not uh I write in uh three to four genres i I mm-hmm. like history so I've, I've written some books uh historically uh, uh some uh telling stories about my experiences throughout life. Uh I've written those. I I wrote a book uh uh just before the uh, a new cat uh it's America's finest and that was my experience uh, in uh, wartime experiences which uh it was a difficult book but uh nonetheless I did write it about um some of the uh soldiers, sailors and airmen that I actually had experiences with um and uh you know that's in book form too it's it's uh, it sells as well even to this day, so I've written different books with different uh genres, especially those things that interest me military interest me and um um what is it just everyday stories-
1: mm-hmm. now the the new cat in in Cicina, uh is is more of a novel, but it has a psychological component to it. Was it more fun to write?
0: It was fun because uh, I was uh, using fellow students <laughs> that I went to school <laughs> with. And uh, uh, what was it? What, uh, uh, let's see. This would be 2016. I uh, took it to our class reunion over at Sassina, uh, and uh, I took gosh, I think it was something like seventy five books to the uh, reunion. Every one of them went and um so I took the uh the money uh from that and gave that to the uh the high school as a oh, start okay. and and uh the um uh my classmates looked in and said, I remember <laughs> you wrote <remember laughs> about fantasy. <laughs> yes I did. And uh so they were stunned by it. That I could even remember going back that far—fifty years. That was fifty years ago when uh, when, when we all were that happened. Yes.
1: Yes. Is there a major theme to it, or a purpose that you want to communicate to to uh, others?
0: Uh, the the major communica- uh, communicative information I've wanted is uh, to convey is that uh, we have a great deal to do with. Uh, how we develop, what we become, uh, how professional uh, we become, or you know, how we stage ourselves in life, but primarily to um, let people know that that uh, part of living is failure, that we should not be afraid to fail, but sit down and um, try to determine what it is that we need to uh, need to do to correct ourselves if i recall uh something like uh 30 to upwards close to 40% of my classmates um uh, graduated from uh college and uh many of them obtained uh doctorates in various fields i mean uh, uh allied health economics business uh whatnot the uh the actual uh person that i wrote uh, about that is Kat. Uh, she has a doctorate to this day, so she is a real person. She has a doctorate, and was um, in in my thinking, she was one of the most impressive people I've ever uh, been around. And um, so that um, there were many more like that in my class, and some of us went to uh, Indiana University, and you know performed very well uh, at uh, Indiana and uh went on to uh do excellent things I mean outstanding things that in my way of thinking were just completely unbelievable uh from that uh, uh from the uh, uh, uh classmates that I went to school with uh they're great people, some of them are are still uh with us uh many of them of course have uh died and are gone on to their new life so um um we there's many of us who are still walking around today amongst the uh, the people all over the world, I can s I can say that as uh, a true statement as well. And we had a uh, model that went something like this, um that our the uh, namesake of our school it uh, has the following is give a little extra or give that little extra. And that's still mm-hmm. the model that that's at that, uh Tessina today. Uh, you'll hear the uh, students up there say, we gave our little extra. Uh, that's an, anything that you do, give a little extra. And that comes from uh, Father Cecina.
1: That's wonderful advice for all of us. We don't always remember that. <laughs> uh, Stephen, you're both a historian and a scientist. You're a leader, obviously, as a, a milit- in the military at some command. You are... Um, There is a, uh, the question I want to ask is how much of science depends on faith?
0: Um, I would say, and this will surprise a lot of people, um, uh, science uh, depends upon faith over 90%. I'm going to say 99%. And that stuns quite a few people um, when I say that, uh, is that uh whatever you know, um let's let's go back take a step back. Empirical science depends upon what you can see, taste, uh, touch and smell utilizing your five senses. Um, faith is where whereby uh you uh, must trust that uh truth is in existence. Truth is, is the main package. If you can't see it if you can't touch it, if you can't taste it or smell it, then science can't use it. It's a struggle between science and, and um, you know, faith that I believe has been in existence for a very long period of time. I have not been able to actually track that, but but um, when I ask uh, people the question, um, uh, do you know of of the planet Jupiter? Have you ever seen the planet Jupiter? And people will tell you, well, no, I've seen it in pictures. And I said, how do you know the pictures are not doctored? And and then they they all generally sit back and go, yeah. So most of what we know today is based upon what we believe. We trust that the truth is being told us um, rather than actually sitting down and doing the, the work that, Um, is necessary to uh, arrive at something that's actual fact. So, you know, what I use with the students that I've taught in the past is that, um, you know, I'll go out and look at the sun. I said, you know, I'll ask a student, is that where the sun actually is? And many, most of them will say, yeah, that's where the sun is. And, And I tell them, Uh, no, that's where it was eight minutes and 33 seconds ago. And they was a what? (laughs) (laughs) And then then I say, okay, I'll ask another question. How far away is the sun from the earth? And they generally, uh, they will respond, I don't know. I said, well, why not? (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, then I will give them some data that will indicate uh what you know what they need to know. And say so the Earth is uh ninety three million miles from the sun. They go, Whoa I mean, that you know, that's <laughs> what they apparently say. But I say also we need to know some additional facts. Uh, how fast is the speed of light? And the, many of them won't know that either. So I will give them uh you know, the uh, how how fast the speed of light is and then they're wild by that. And I said that's per second. Now you have to convert the seconds to minutes, so you have to multiply one hundred eight one hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second times sixty. And then you'll take the ninety three million miles divided in and then that's that's where the sun was eight minutes and thirty three seconds ago. That would be the result. Then, what I do is I have them, um, you know, I, I show them a problem where we can predict where the sun's going to be eight minutes and 33 seconds later. So, I uh, we work out the, the uh, problem, or at least I show them how to do this. And then I said, right here is where you'll see the, the sun in eight minutes and 33 seconds ago. We get a stopwatch timing, and for sure that's where it is. <laughs> And They're wowed by that. that they're wowed awesome.
1: by it. Yes, it's. I mean, because that form of science is it stretches your brain. It's not what you're mm-hmm. normal. You know, you normally think about. It's wonderful. Now, you mentioned faithwriters.com. What is that?
0: That is a uh, a site where uh, individuals who um, I would say uh, who are basically. Christians, there probably are some uh, non-Christians there and, and other who uh, submit uh, what they write to that website, and uh, oftentimes uh, people who are, um, uh, let's say, ministers uh, and interested people will go through that site and uh, look at the work that there's literally thousands of uh, authors uh, worldwide who submit their the stories uh the scientific papers, some of them, like I have, and mm-hmm. then uh books uh book companies uh magazines churches will uh see it. uh they will oftentimes get a hold of the author and uh, uh have them write for them or submit some of their stories to the uh, uh to the uh requesting uh Publishers, uh, other writers, or or, or preachers, and uh, so I've earned a little money from that that site just by my writings. I I have posted something pretty close to a thousand stories that I've written on that site, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so that I've written for uh, publishers, ministers, and and uh, others. That um, uh, you know, literally around the world, English-speaking world as well, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's an open uh, invite to uh, to those who want to write, want to be published, and many of the places I've published in have been as a result of com. As a matter of fact, I've written. Uh, for uh chickens soup uh I know quite a few really? people with that yes uh um, wow and uh uh cup of cup cup of Comfort and uh and others these are some of the bigger ones but i've written for them, mm-hmm. and they actually have been paid pretty good good money for wow. uh for writing for, to them so there was one that I published uh, so let's see it's uh um I think it's, it's going to be about 10 years ago. I hadn't looked at it, but over 17 million people wrote it, uh, or not wrote it. I have read that, and I've received emails from uh, people all over the world uh, uh, based upon a person that, uh, once again, I knew and wrote mm-hmm. a story mm-hmm. about her and her, uh, her her problems, and I guess it helped other people worldwide I've even gotten uh, letters or emails from people living in um Iraq, uh Saudi Arabia, um Japan, Australia, Brazil, uh Israel. So, wow. they That's have, an incredible have, that's gift. A, yeah, well, that really
1: is a gift to have that. I mean, I I I hope you take uh pride in the ability to do that at the same time that you're giving glory to God for giving you that, that, Mm -hmm. that gift. It's magnificent. You know, there is so much to talk about with you. Um, for the sake of our listeners, where can they find a copy of there's a new kid in, in Uh,
0: you can go through, uh, author house and, um, I had not checked it in the last month or so, but, um, Amazon had been selling, uh some of the books that i've written and uh a new cat is probably uh like i said i had not checked in a while on that uh, website amazon sells everything but uh, they can also get um, copies from uh, author house and uh several other uh let's see cheap uh, cheap books have sold it um but uh many of the english-speaking uh, uh, publishers even in England has uh um, actually purchased uh, or actually have sold some of the, the books that I've written in the uh the past. Like I said I've, i started writing my first uh, true publication was in nineteen seventy five in terms of a of a book form. And uh so I guess that's I'm counting the number of years that seems like that is what, forty five years mm-hmm. of uh or almost forty-six years of writing. So, I started uh, started when I was fifteen years old, and you know, still doing it.
1: Still doing it. More power to you. Well, thank you very much for being with us, Stephen, and, and I'd like to to thank our listeners for tuning in as well. We are fortunate to catch a glimpse into the life of Stephen Peterson and his book. There's a new kid in Cassina. As he mentioned, it's available on Amazon for your reading pleasure, and we appreciate you joining us. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe or follow us and recommend us to others. Thank you again, Stephen.
0: And thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's much appreciated.
1: Well, I'm, I'm delighted to do so. So, once again, everyone, it's time to go. Have a great day.
0: Thank you very much for tuning in today. If you've been inspired by this show, leave a rating or review on iTunes and visit www.rainbowsoverrunes.com to receive a free chapter from Susan's book. On behalf of Susan Shireko, this has been Rebuilding Your Life, Moving from Disaster to Prosperity, Sharing the Journeys of Those Affected by Sudden and Great Loss and What They Did to Heal, Rebuild, and Where They Are Now.